It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. One of the best things about traveling to aquarium clubs around the world is getting to meet all sorts of interesting hobbyists. And one of the things that I'm struck by, besides the sheer number of unusual things that my fellow fish geeks are into, is a tremendous fascination with the ecosystems from which many of the fishes that we play with come from. This comes up again and again. I was speaking at a club this weekend in Washington, D.C., a club with tremendously experienced hobbyists, and the open-mindedness and fascination with this botanical-style aquarium thing was really exciting and stimulating. One of the topics that kept coming up during our, you know, our presentation and afterwards in the ensuing conversation was thinking on a deeper level about how to more faithfully replicate the natural habitats of many of the fishes that we love so much. And of course, the idea that there are all sorts of interesting influences on these natural habitats created by the surrounding terrestrial environment and the microbial associations which occur in the substrates, the leaves, the woods, and other materials which comprise them. Really neat, you know, conversation. Now, the relationship between terrestrial habitats and the aquatic environment is becoming increasingly apparent, particularly in areas in which black water is found. And the lack of suspended sediments, which create a so-called nutrient-poor condition in these habitats, doesn't do much to facilitate in-situ production of aquatic food sources. Rather, it places the emphasis on external factors. We've talked about this before, but many blackwater systems are simply too poor in nutrients to offer alternative food sources to fishes. And the importance of the relationships between the fishes and their surrounding terrestrial habitat, i.e. the forests, which are inundated periodically, is therefore obvious. And that likely explains the significant amount of insects and other terrestrial food sources that ichthyologists constantly find in gut content analysis of many of these interesting fishes that are found in the habitats. And as we've hinted on previously, the availability of food at different times of the year in these waters also contributes to the composition of the fish community, um, which varies from season to season based on the relative abundance of the different food resources available. Kind of makes sense, right? And... Another interesting example of these unique interdependencies between land and uh, water are things that happen when trees fall. It's not uncommon for a tree to fall in the rainforest with all that punishing rain and the saturated ground sort of conspiring to easily knock over anything that's not firmly rooted. And when these trees fall over, they fall into small streams, or in the case of the Varzea or Agapo environments in the Amazon that I'm obsessed with, they fall into areas that are inundated forest floors that become submerged when the rain and the floodwaters return. And of course, they immediately impact their now terrestrial, or excuse me, now aquatic environment, and that fulfills several functions. You know, they provide a physical barrier or separation from currents, offering territories for fishes to spawn in, providing a substrate for algae and biofilms to multiply on, and providing places for fishes to forage among and hide in. So an entire community of aquatic life forms uses a fallen tree for many purposes, and the tree trunks and parts will last for many, many years, fulfilling an important role in the aquatic ecosystems that they reside in each time the waters return. So it's pretty neat to see that. And in nature, we've discussed many times, leaf litter zones comprise one of the most, um, one of the richest and most diverse biotopes in the tropical aquatic ecosystem. Yet until recently, they've seldom been replicated in the aquarium. And I think this has been due in large part 
to the lack of continuous availability of products for the hobbyist to work with and a lack of real understanding about what this biotope's all about, not to mention the understanding of the practicality of creating one in the aquarium. So a lot of understanding there. Um, Long-held fears and concerns, like overwhelming our systems with biological materials and the overall look of decomposing leaves and botanicals in our tanks has undoubtedly you know, led to this idea of being relegated to you know, sideshow status for many years. And it's only been recently that we've started looking at them more objectively as ecological niches worth even replicating in aquariums. So the function of this habitat can best be summarized in a, in a very interesting excerpt I found in a paper on the Amazonian blackwater leaf litter communities by a biologist by the name of Peter Allen Henderson. And this is a very useful um, sort of lesson for us, those, those of us that are trying to attempt to replicate these communities in our aquaria. And he says, life within the leaf litter is not a crowded, chaotic scramble for, face, for a space and food. Each species occupies a subregion defined by physical variables such as flow and oxygen content, water depth, leaf litter depth, and particle size. This subtle subdivision of space is the key to understanding the maintenance of diversity. With, while subdivision of time is also evident with, for example, gymnotids, which are night fish, hunting by night and cichlids hunting by day, this is only possible when each species has its space within which to hide. So in other words, Different species inhabit different sections of the leaf litter, and we should consider this when creating and stocking our biotope systems. That's really neat stuff. So beyond just creating an aggregation of material which imparts tannins and humic substances into the water in our tanks, we're creating a little habitat, every bit as interesting, diverse, and complex as any other we attempt to replicate. In the aquarium, you need to consider both practicality and aesthetics when replicating this biotope. And it's a biotope that deserves your attention and study for sure. And of course, if you want to split hairs and really parse this stuff out, you probably wonder which specific leaves, seed pods, etc. are found in the habitat of the fish that you're interested in keeping. I know it makes perfect sense. You're likely thinking, if I use the exact materials found in these habitats that my fishes come from, I'll likely be imparting the same compounds and the same ratios found in nature. Seriously, I'll bet you that's exactly what you were thinking. But no, I've spent several years trying to track down some of these plants and, you know, found in these various tropical locales and of course, there's always a little problem with that. Many are simply not available outside of their native, you know, habitats. And you can literally drive yourself crazy trying to find them. I've made a great effort, you know, trying to do that over the last few years. And in the end, I realized that we have to settle for surrogates, fish, leaves, which, you know, and, and botanicals, which come from plants found in the regions where fishes come from. So there's, you know, possibility that these might find their way into the aquatic habitats that we're interested in, but uh, the whole, they're representative of what's out there. And that returns us to the interesting question about exactly what compounds are found in what ratios from what materials in a given aquatic habitat. And even if we could source the exact leaves or seed pods or whatever, we'd at best be guessing as to how much of what they are imparting into the water. Like, uh, will a catapa leaf collected in February from Malaysia have the same ratio of tannins, humic substances, and other compounds as a catapa leaf collected in India in July under slightly different circumstances? I mean, does it matter? Yeah, you could pretty much go crazy trying to do the mental gymnastics around this stuff. You really could. But the reality is the best that we can likely hope for until some incredibly detailed analysis of the water conditions in our fave habitats are done is to simply do our best. Yeah, really. Frustrating, I know. However, so I suppose that until more information is unlocked, the best that we can do is just utilize the materials that we have, you know, things that are available in a quantity and, and variety which just sort of feels right to us and seems to have a positive impact on our fishes and to take note of our findings our discoveries our problems these kind of interesting little things can occupy hobbyists for decades 
And the fact is, most of what we're doing in our little botanical-infused world is simply a best guess in many cases, a true work in progress. Yet, a work in progress which many, you know, have found that may have some profound impact on the hobby for decades. Isn't it exciting to be on the hobby's bleeding edge? Yeah, I think it is. Stay devoted, stay curious, stay diligent, stay excited, stay observant, and always stay wet. This is Scott Feldman. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.